Well, this week we got back from Kansas City, and um, it was a joy being at my old stomping grounds uh, with people from my new stomping grounds. It was kind of cool to, uh, I spent three years in the Midwestern Seminary community, and I've spent three years here at Whitecliff Church, and to see those two things kind of together was a lot of fun, and I was able to make a lot of introductions. So I'd see a brother that I'd prayed with, that I'd, I'd talked with, and I'd say, hey, have you met Guy? And this is one of the elders at our church in Wycliffe Church. Or I'd see uh, a sister that I know, and this is Jerry. Oh, and it was, a, it was fun to be able to make connections. Keenan was able to make connections with Alan and some of the people he knew. We were able to introduce people to other people. And this morning, I would like to introduce you to three people. There are three people that I want to introduce you to this morning as we think about today's passage. Although, I just about guarantee you probably met all three of these people in the American Evangelical Church. And the first man I'd like to introduce you to is a guy named Dr. Ndani. Dr. Ndani. You may know Dr. Ndani. He got a hold of some teaching whether it be a podcast or a magazine or a YouTube channel, and now he is the local church doctrine warrior. Now, he is orthodox, but Dr. Ndani, he raises everything to primary. Whatever he just heard on the podcast, man, that is the most important thing for everybody in the small group to know. He is more than willing to belittle a fellow church member over a tertiary issue in the name of discernment. More than once, he's left a Bible study red-faced and frustrated at people's ignorance. That's Dr. Ndani. Second, I want to introduce you to Experience Eric. Now, Experience Eric is all about experiencing Christ. Sometimes in his life, emotions will trump what the Bible says, but you know God is love anyways. He's always looking for that next thrilling experience. He wants unity at all costs. He doesn't want to divide over what the Bible says. He just wants to link arms with brothers and sisters in a stadium and sing Chris Tomlin songs. If it feels good, if there are feels there, then experience Eric is happy. And finally, I want to introduce you to Action Alice. Action Alice. Now, Action Alice takes seriously the call to be the hands and feet of Christ. If we are moving, she is there. If there is a, a, an event, she's going to help set up the chairs. Like experienced Eric, she looks for unity at all costs. She doesn't want to argue about the Bible. She just wants to do more things. That's Action Alice. And so those are the three people I just wanted to start out this morning introducing you to. We've got Dr. Ndani, Experience Eric, and Action Alice. And while you may know them by different names, I'm guessing you probably know all three. So which one has got it right? Which one's doing things the way they're supposed to? Well, I would argue none of them. None of them are healthy Biblically speaking, J.I. Packer has a very good illustration for this. He says that the Christian life is like a three-legged stool, right? It's a three-legged stool. There's a doctrine leg. There's an experience leg, or what I like to call an affections leg, and an action leg. And if one of your legs is, 
is longer than the other, right? Like what happens? You ever been on a stool? Like we got some at the house, and, and you sit on them, and one leg is a little bit longer than the other. What's it do? It wobbles, right? And you're constantly rocking back and forth. Something's off. Something's wrong. If you love doctrine but struggle to love Christ, your life is going to be off balance, right? If you love people but are haphazard in your reading of God's Word, your Christian life is going to be off. Now, if one of those legs is non-existent, your stool will fall. If you are very good at charity, yet you embrace heresy, you are outside the Christian faith. If you love historic doctrine and you can argue the ordo salutis in Latin, you know it and nobody else knows it in your small group, yet you do not love other Christians, you have no right to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Friends, a Christian must have biblical doctrine and must think rightly about God, the gospel, and how we are to live. A Christian must have truly experienced God's saving grace and have a heart that burns for his or her king. And a Christian must desire to serve his or her king and walk worthy of the gospel. A Christian must seek to have all three in balance. Theologians have said our doctrine leads to devotion. Breaking that down a little further and following Packer's lead, I want to say our doctrine leads to Christ-centered affections, and those Christ-centered affections lead to Christ-honoring actions. Our good biblical doctrine leads to Christ-centered affections, which will lead to Christ-honoring actions. As we have been in the last few chapters of Philippians, what we have seen is that we cannot do anything to earn God's favor. I can never be good enough. But I need Christ's imputed righteousness in my life. I need a righteousness that is not my own, that is alien to my, uh, who I am as a person and comes from Christ. And I need to know that from the Bible. I need good doctrine, but that doctrine should raise my affections for my King so much so that I live a life that honors Him. And today, Paul is going to unpack further what those actions look like. So if you would turn with me to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, we are going to pick up where we left off last week. Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. And after calling the church, as you're turning there, after calling the church to live up to their calling and to stand firm in the Lord... Paul then provides the church six ways to walk worthy of their calling. Six ways. And look with me, starting in verse 2. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement, and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice always in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we praise you that we have your written word, that we might know you, that we might understand the gospel and know how to live in light of it. And Father, I pray for our time together this morning as we look at this passage as I feebly attempt to unpack it for your people. God, I pray that you would guard their hearts, guard their ears, guard their minds. Press your word into them and guard my mouth. And if anything unprofitable, unhelpful, or untrue would, would, would inadvertently come from my mouth, God, I pray that it would fall away from these people, that it would be forgotten. Father, glorify yourself in the next few minutes as we are here together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So after calling the church to live up to their calling in Jesus Christ and to stand firm, Paul gives the church six ways that they can walk worthy. Walk worthy by seeking unity with other believers. Walk worthy by cultivating a community where unity can grow. Rejoice in the Lord. Trust in God's provision. Dwell on the good and do what you have learned. Now, as we remember, Paul is writing this from prison to a church that he dearly loves, and joy saturates this letter. In chapter 3, Paul states emphatically that the Christian's righteousness is from God through Christ and is not from anyone's personal merit. The Bible is clear that Christians are saved by grace and by grace alone, apart from works, lest we boast. Our righteousness is an imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness applied to us according to God's sovereign grace. But the Bible is also clear that if we have received this righteousness, if we have received this new life, if we have received God's unmerited favor, we are now new creations with a new standard of living. We are new men, we are new women with new hearts, and our hearts are devoted to our King. And Paul calls the church to live worthy of the gospel, to work out their salvation, to live up to their calling. And in this passage, we find six ways that we can do that. First, walk worthy by seeking unity with other believers. Look with me at verse 2. We have Iodia and Sintichi. And Paul says, I urge them to agree in the Lord. Now, we have no idea how, who Iodia and Sintichi are, other than they're two ladies. They have worked with Paul before for the gospel, and they aren't getting along. We know that they're fighting, and Paul brings two main themes of this letter to bear on it. Have the same mind and contend for the advancement of the gospel. Help these ladies, as we'll see in a minute. Friends, as the local church, we are to seek unity by growing in forgiveness. Growing in forgiveness. If you don't know this already, and I'm sure you already do, just like those first three folks we talked about, squabbles happen in the local church. 
Squabbles happen here in these walls. Squabbles happen through text message. But as the forgiven people, we are called to forgive one another. Maybe you're saying, well, I can't forgive him, pastor. I can't forgive her what she said to me. Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what she did? I can't forgive her, pastor. But I say to you, without reservation, you must forgive. You do not get a choice. Not if you're in Christ. In Matthew 18, we see the conduct of the royal community in the whole chapter. But there at the end, Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a story about two servants. Right? And and both of these servants owe money. Now this one servant, the first guy, he owes trillions of dollars to his master. And his master takes him and says, pay what you owe. And does anybody know what the first servant says? He hits his knees and he says, forgive me, like I I will pay you, have mercy on me, don't sell me, don't sell my family, have mercy on me. And what does the master do? He takes them and says, I forgive you all your debt. All those trillions of dollars that you could never actually earn, I forgive you. Just blanket forgiving. Man, can you imagine how that felt? Like you walk in there and you're like, man, my wife and kids are about to be sold, I'm never going to see them again. Like, uh, it's just the end. It's everything is the end. And you walk out completely forgiven. But what does that first slave do? Well, he sees a guy walking down the street that borrowed five bucks the other day so he could get a Starbucks. Well, I guess more like eight bucks to get a Starbucks. And he sees this guy and he says, hey, that guy owes me eight bucks. I want my eight bucks. And he goes up and starts choking the guy and says, pay what you owe. And the guy says, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I don't have the eight dollars. And the first slave says, nah, 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 son. And he takes him and sells him. He holds him accountable. But the other masters hear about it, or you know, however that's, that in part go. I'm going off memory here. But the, 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 others, the other servants see what the first servant did, and they go and tell the master, and the master is enraged. And he takes it out on the first guy, and he says, I forgave you trillions, yet you held your fellow slave to that eight bucks. And Jesus says, so your heavenly Father will do to each one of you who does not forgive. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? No. That means that the forgiving community is a forgiving community. And if you choose to be unforgiving, that is an attribute that shows that you're probably not a part of this community. Friend, you must forgive. And along with forgiving those who trespassed against us, we should help others forgive. Second, look at verse 3. We see... Yes, I also ask, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul asked the rest of the church, the community, we're talking about church membership downstairs, right? He asked the community to help these women. And here we're reminded that Christianity is not a solo sport, right? It's not me, Billy Graham, and my old KJV, right? It's a community. Help these women. They are fellow Christians. Their names are in the book of life. Help them work this out. The local church must be a community where forgiveness thrives. So we must cultivate a unified community by growing in our love for one another. Friends, our selfishness causes us to give in to gossip and not cultivate this community we're talking about. 
whereas love refuses to listen. Selfishness seeks our advantage, whereas love seeks the good of our fellow members. Selfishness makes the conflict worse, whereas love seeks to bind up those wombs. I've said this before, but one of the most shocking facts for Sarah and I when we first came to Ketchikan three years ago is that all of those who used, not all of them, but most of those who threw the word around love the most often did the cruelest things. We've heard people claim love while slandering someone else. We heard ladies passively digging at another woman's husband in prayer meetings through their prayers holding secret meetings against other people, and then when asked about it, pretending to fly the flag of love. Friends, the local church must be a secure place where forgiveness is normal for Iodia and Sintichi and for everyone else sitting in this room right now. Safeguarding our relationships. Safeguarding this family. We must cultivate a community where unity can grow, where forgiveness is normal, where we are Christ-centered, and where we rejoice in what Christ has done for us. Third, walk worthy by rejoicing in the Lord. Look at verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Friends, Paul calls the church even though they are suffering alongside of him while he is in prison and they're experiencing the same sufferings. He says, rejoice. Praise the Lord. I think of the psalmist where he, 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 he calls on everyone to praise the Lord, and then he calls himself to praise the Lord at all times. Praise the Lord. Rejoice. In the middle of fear, in the middle of persecution, the church is called Lift Your Voice. As we sang this morning, Alan, that was like the perfect song to sing with this passage. Rejoice. Grow in rejoicing by cultivating a life of praise. Praise and joy in the Lord are crucial, but especially during hardship. As you guys know, I'm a dork, and I like to watch British shows. And one of the British shows I like to watch is a show called Endeavor. I know some of y'all have watched the show. Endeavor is a, a prequel to the, the show Morse, and Endeavor Morse is this detective uh, with the Oxford City Police, and he has this background in classical education. So he's kind of this nerdy guy, makes nerdy guys um, that are awkward, you know, feel normal. Um, but he's this nerdy, awkward guy that has this background in classical education, but he, he flunks out of Oxford and he becomes, after a stint in the army, he becomes a police officer. And all the other police officers are making fun of him because they're your typical gumshoes. They're like, you know, knocking guys out like they did back in the day. I know they don't do that now. Uh, but they're doing all this stuff, and he's kind of a dork that always solves the crime. But he also likes classical music. That's his thing. That's his stick. Is he loves classical music. And he's always putting these records on. And after this especially disturbing case in this one episode, Morse asks his boss, Inspector Thursday, he says, how do you do it? How do you go home and be normal after you watch that happen? And Fred Thursday says, go home, grab your favorite classical record, turn it up to 10, and remind yourself that's one thing the darkness could not take. Now, from a Christian standpoint, I want to say to you, friends, when you're especially discouraged, when that friend stabs you in the back, 
When the person leaves you who you didn't think would leave, when the culture is pressuring you, when your job is pressuring you to affirm things that you cannot affirm, sometimes you will have to go into your study, crank up a mighty fortress to level 10, and sing at the top of your lungs and remind yourself that you serve a God who is on the throne that He is sovereign over creation, and rejoice that your name is in the book of life. Rejoice. Paul says it a second time. Rejoice. Praise the Lord that your name is in the book of life. Not when you feel like it. Not when it's convenient. But always. Christ alone is worthy. Rejoice. And trust. The fourth thing we see here is Walk worthy by trusting in God's provision. Look at verses 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, Paul says. I'm curious how many of you are prone to worry. Right? If you didn't raise your hand, it's either because you don't like crowd participation stuff or you're a liar. Because we all worry, don't we? Every single one of us worry. We worry. And the Bible reminds us that even though we are falling and that we struggle with trust, and we struggle with anxiety, that really we don't have anything to worry about. We see this theme throughout the Scripture, right? The creator of the universe clothes the fields. He feeds the birds. How much more important are his chosen children? He directs our steps. All things are working to the good of God's people and for his glory. He planned the day of our birth, but he also planned the day of our death. We should be like Stonewall Jackson, right? The, the general in the Civil War that they asked him, they said, how can you stand on your horse with bombs blowing around you like a stone wall? And he says, my faith teaches me to believe that God has appointed the day I will die, so why worry? All things, friends, are in God's hands. We are to trust in his provision and grow in prayer. And Paul reminds the church, present your request to God through prayer, petition, thanksgiving, we need to think rightly about prayer now. I need to stop and pause there, right? Think rightly about prayer. God is not our genie in a bottle. Right? We don't rub it when we want something. Sometimes people will say to me, I believe in the power of prayer, and I usually respond, well, I don't. And they say, what? what kind of pastor, what kind of Christian doesn't believe in the power of prayer? And I say, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in an all-powerful, sovereign God, therefore I pray to Him. There is a distinction. I do not believe prayer is an act in which I can tap into some higher power to get things done. But friends, we believe in an all-powerful, sovereign God that is directing history and directing feet, and He is good, and He is gracious, and therefore I pray to Him. There's a Christian song out there that says, when we pray, we are moving the hand of God. Friend, I, if you listen to that song and it makes you feel good, I just want to burst your bubble and say, you do not move God's anything. God is sovereign. 
Therefore, we pray, thy will be done. But take your petitions, take your confessions, take your, thank your thanksgiving to God, knowing that he is sovereign and good, and that he loves his children. He is a good father. Trust his plan. Remind yourself that he is good. Trust and do not be anxious. Trust him, and God's peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. When God is rightly in your heart on his throne, and you know that he is in control, and when you believe his word, and I struggle just as much as anybody, right? There is a peace in knowing that all things are in his hands, and despite the fact that I'm chained to a wall in prison like Paul, we can rejoice. God's peace transcends all human minds and dreams. God's peace is like a military guard placed around your heart and mind, protecting you though you go through the valley. You will fear no evil. God's peace will keep watch over your heart and your mind. And Paul essentially says, Christian, don't worry. Be happy. The fifth thing we see is that we are to walk worthy by dwelling in the good. Look with me at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Dwell on this. That it's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, moral excellence, praiseworthy. Paul says, put your mind on those things. Dwell in the good. And you'll grow in thankfulness. Practically, the next time you are anxious, pray through these eight things. I got it, man. I get anxious and I worry like anybody else, so I'm not speaking to you as somebody who's figured it out. But as your fellow pilgrim, right, pray through these things. I'll give you three. Pray about what's true. What is true? John 17, 17, right? God's word is true. Thank you, God, for giving us your perfect, inerrant word that we might know what is true. Pray. Be thankful. Pure. What is pure? God, your love is pure. Thank you, God, for loving me, for predestining me to life in Christ, and for sealing my adoption in Christ's blood. God, your love is pure. Thank you for your love. What is lovely? Well, as the Puritans say, Christ is altogether lovely. We do not want to be ostriches with our head in the sand when trouble comes. We do not want to be like the knight on Monty Python, right? Like the one that gets his arms and stuff chopped off and he's going, tis but a scratch. Like we don't want to be joyfully ignorant. But we do want to always come back to this list and be thankful for the things that the Lord has done and remind ourselves that he is in control and have that peace that guards our heart. Friends, press these truths into your heart daily. Then walk in the truth. Look at verse 9. Number 6. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, walk worthy by doing what you have learned. Do what you've learned. I think first when we think about this passage, we need to remind ourselves that, and acknowledge that Christianity is not a thoughtless, emotion-based religion. Right? I know some of y'all don't like that word religion. I'm not using it in like a, a pharisaical sense, but really, it's not a bad word. 
Christianity is not a thoughtless, emotion-based religion. God has given his people his written word, right? Like he didn't give us a YouTube video. He didn't give us, you know, any other thing you can think of. We don't just get like vague emotional feelings and stuff from God. He has given us theology in sentence form. And we are called to know it, to study, to show ourselves, approve. So Christianity is a a religion in which we know God has given us his spirit and he has given us his written word and his spirit illuminates his word to us. But then we are called to put into practice that which we have learned. Put it into practice. We are not called to, as James said, just be hearers, but we are called to be doers of the word. We do not affirm what God says in his word and then go do whatever we want. As we were talking about downstairs, many of us can pass the quiz on paper, but we're called to put that into action in life. You cannot affirm that the Bible says that you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and then cuss one out when they don't do what you want. You cannot hear from Ephesians that obscene and foolish talking and crude joking are not suitable and then go out and tell dirty jokes and sexual innuendos. And if you do, you're just a hearer. You're not a doer of God's word. And I pray that the Lord would grant you repentance because Christian, hear me, you are to do that which you have learned. We are to grow in discipline. Friends, we must discipline ourselves for godliness. Quote from Kent Hughes, I've read it before, but it's so good I'm going to read it again. Kent Hughes says this, legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to earn points with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and I want to please Him. There is a difference between the motivation of legalism and that of discipline. Paul knew this implicitly and he fought the legalists bare-knuckled all the way across Asia Minor, never giving them an inch. And then he commands us, train yourself to be godly. If we confuse legalism with discipline, we do so at our own soul's peril, end quote. Friends, just as a musician practices his craft, you are called to practice discipline. Put into practice that which you have learned. Study God's word. No good doctrine. Let your affections for God and Christ be raised because what if he has done for you and then go and put that into action. Not to earn points with God, but because of what God has done for you. Do what you have learned and the Bible says and Paul says here, the God of peace will be with you. Do what you have learned and the God of peace will be with you. Paul has called the church, the Philippian church, and by extension us, to live up to our calling. Stand firm in the Lord. And then he gives us six ways of doing that here. Packer says, our high and privileged calling is to do the will of God and the power of God for the glory of God. Friends, our doctrine leads to our devotion. Christ's sacrifice for us and his calling leads to our obedience. 
As Paul has said a few verses ago, Christ has taken hold of me. If Christ has taken hold of you, you are his, and your lifestyle will change. Our doctrine leads to Christ-centered affections, and those Christ-centered affections lead to Christ-honoring actions. This morning, friends, what does your heart say about you? You know, I said last week, I'll say it again, a good sermon either makes you hate your sin or hate the preacher. Do you hate your sin right now or are you mad at me for bringing it up? Are you annoyed at a call to live differently? Are you upset that I have the audacity to tell you that you have to forgive that person that hurt you so bad? Did I have the audacity to say that you can't joke about what you want in a, in a logging camp on a fishing boat when you're down at the docks? We're Alaskans. We're rough and tough. Yeah, but first and foremost, you're a Christian who has imperium in your life. Are you upset that I have the audacity to say you must pursue godliness? Friend, I say, if you find yourself struggling with that, I desire your repentance. I desire that you would turn to the Lord. But if you do not, I desire that you would truly turn and repent, maybe for the first time, and believe the gospel. Believe that Christ is who he said he is. Submit yourself to Christ today, because only the power of God can change you. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not some vague idealism. The gospel is not egghead doctrine theology to other eggheads. The gospel is not emotional dope to get you high in a stadium to Tomlin songs. The gospel is not just a social cause. Friends, the gospel is that the eternal God became flesh and dwelt among his creation. And not just as a vacation or a trip. He stood in as a substitute for his bride by taking the Father's righteous wrath that you and I justly deserve. The gospel is that he rose again and intercedes for his church and you need to do nothing but turn and repent. Believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Friends, repentance is discerning the folly and the guilt over what you have done. Repentance is desiring to find forgiveness and abandon your sin and honor God. Not just, I'm sorry I did that. I wish I hadn't done that. But generally, genuinely turning and having remorse over that sin, asking the Lord to forgive you and for the power to change and demonstrating by the testimony of your life a changed behavior that you have left sin behind because of what Christ has done in you. The gospel is that Christ's mercy will make you into a new creation. I implore you this morning, friend, repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Christ. Maybe you find yourself this morning being the doctrine Donnie. You can recite all the ancient creeds, but you don't care about your brothers. You don't care about your sisters. Maybe you're the experienced Eric. You're really just looking for the next emotional high, but you don't care about truth. All this sounds really harsh to you because really it's just, you just need that 60-minute uplifting thing to get to the next day. And you don't really want to be called out on your sin. You're just an experienced Eric, or maybe you're an action Alice, and you're just here for the, for the cause, but you're neglecting serving the King of Kings. 
friends, you cannot pull yourself together. You cannot do it on your own strength. You must repent and you must believe the gospel. And I pray that you would do that today. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you still call men and women, boys and girls, to yourself according to your sovereign grace. God, I pray for those hearing my voice right now who have never trusted you. God, I don't, uh, we, we don't care how many times they pray to prayer in a building somewhere, God, but we care about those who have truly trusted you according to your drawing them. God, I pray that you would graciously and mercifully draw them to yourself, that you would grant them repentance, you would grant them no sleep until they fall at the feet of Christ. And for those who are in Christ who have sins to repent of, God, I pray you would be gracious and merciful to them as well. And Father, for those who are doing their best to live lives to honor you, God, I pray that they be encouraged and reminded and that they would rejoice in you, that they would trust in your strength knowing that you are sovereign over creation. God, I pray that even this moment they would go out from this place ready to be a doer of your word and not merely a hearer. All for your honor and your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.